1: I'm Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, we're discussing civil rights. However, probably not what first comes to your mind. Considering these turbulent times, with my guest Stephen Wise, the founder and president of the Non Human Rights Project, the only civil rights organization in the United States working to gain legally recognized and fundamental rights for non human animals in the courtroom through a state by state, country by country, long term litigation campaign. The Non Human Rights Project groundbreaking habeas corpus lawsuits demand recognition of the legal personhood and fundamental right to bodily liberty of individual great apes, elephants, dolphins, and whales held in captivity across the U.S. So folks, listeners, be sure to um, go back and listen to our previous podcast uh, with Stephen Wise, and that will give you a lot of background of where this began. I met Stephen in 2013, so we have a lot to catch up on. So welcome, Welcome back, Stephen.
2: Well, we certainly do, and thank you for having me back.
1: It's great because a lot has been going on. I've been following your work, both on Facebook. Um, look them up, and on your website, humanrights.org. And back
2: at humanrights.org.
1: Non, I'm sorry, nonhumanrights.org. Critical. mistake I made there. So back in 2013, we met at the PAWS conference, and I was totally entranced by your presentation. And we did an episode, which I'm asking our listeners to go back and catch up on. At that time, you were well into the case for Tommy, the chimpanzee, but you were just breaking ground to take on the rights of captive elephants. And I believe that was Beulah, Karen, and Minnie. So you can catch us up on that. So um, for the listeners that may not be familiar with your approach and what you do, maybe you could give us a brief summary of what galvanized you personally to take on this challenge, because in our long history of humanhood... Animals have always been assigned as property with no rights. You know, you can buy them, you can sell them, you can kill them, you can shoot them, you can hunt them. That we don't see them as we didn't under management and wildlife management models or large landscape species survival. We don't see them as having individual rights or personhood. So maybe you can help define personhood for us and why you chose this this battle?
2: Certainly. Well, the difference between being a person and being a thing is is fundamental. If you are a thing, it means that you lack the capacity for any kind of legal right. Uh, You are seen as, as living for the for the um, the interests of of persons. If you're a person, it means you have the capacity for one or a hundred or an infinite number of legal rights. And things essentially live live for you. So uh, you are the master. A, a person is the master of the thing, which is your slave, and a thing is, which is your slave is the is the uh, slave to the master. And that's whether i um, whether I'm talking about I'm the master of my computer, I'm the master of my telephone. I'm the master of my dog or a tiger. It doesn't matter. Uh, they're they're all they're all things. Now, one thing I, I do have to emphasize is that um, being a human being and being a person are not synonyms. Uh, there have been many times in history in which human beings uh, are not persons. So, for example, even today, of uh, fetuses may human fetuses may not be not be persons at one time uh, human slaves were not or women might not have been or children might not have been persons on the other hand there have been many entities who are not humans who are persons uh, corporations you know, ships um, the the United States you know the uh, uh, the city of New York and perhaps more interestingly uh, over the recent years uh, New Zealand has made this very clear by uh, making a, a river a, a person uh, a national Park a person. Um, same thing uh, in India. The Ganges River has been made a person. In the in Colombia, uh, that part of the Amazon rainforest that uh, is in in Colombia has been made a person. So a person is a is a legal construct. It's not a human being. It could be a human being. Uh, it's an entity that the legal system considers important enough to, to warrant giving it rights.
1: This is a really critical um, understanding definition because we're so used to thinking of a person as a people, a, 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 a human. So how are you going about We've made a lot of strides over since we, you and I met over these past this past des- decade. A lot of awareness, research, science, data, which is what your cases focus on, not just emotions and I love animals aspect. But we've come a long way in understanding how complex many of our non human fellow earthlings are elephant, chimpanzee, dolphin, whale, a river, an ecosystem versus insects, a cockroach, or grasses, or wolves or lions for that matter. So do you see this shift that's happened since we last spoke? Do you see it helping your cause?
2: Uh, well yes, and you know there there are many reasons why why a thing should no longer be a thing but should but should be a person. Uh, when we happen to argue uh, uh, the cognitive ability, specifically the autonomy that that our non-human animal a client has, uh, we say is a sufficient though not a necessary condition for personhood. Uh, There are probably many sufficient but not necessary conditions for personhood, and I'm not sure if I know any necessary conditions. So uh, we have begun by... Uh, choosing to litigate on behalf of those non-human animals who we can prove through uh, through the affidavits of perhaps the most noted scientists who are working in, in, in their field, uh, that our client, whether she's a chimpanzee, whether he's an elephant, that these beings are autonomous. And the reason we do that is that uh, we, we have spent many years, many years, uh, trying to understand How we might be able to persuade a court that what was, or what has been, perhaps a thing for two thousand years, you know, ought no longer to be a thing, but ought to be a person. No longer be a thing who lacks all rights, who's essentially the slave of persons, but ought to be a a, a person who has who has her own rights. And when we have researched this, we, especially in the western in in the western countries, we find time and time again that uh, judges um, strongly. Um, believe in the idea of autonomy, that it's a large part of their job to allow human beings, because they are autonomous, which means that uh, they can choose how to live their lives uh, within large boundaries. And judges uh, feel that, uh, that it's their job to allow us autonomous human beings to live our lives within large boundaries and we then argue to to the judges one of the many arguments we make is that such non-human animals as elephants or chimpanzees or perhaps orcas that we can prove that they too are autonomous beings and that and that since the judges believe that it's an important part of their job to protect autonomy we can show them that our elephant, for example, is autonomous, and she should also be protected, her autonomy should be protected, and uh, that she should no longer be considered you know, merely a thing who lacks every legal right. It can be viewed as a slave, which they are, uh, but she ought to um, be a person, which means she has the capacity for rights, and the, and the right that we ask for is the right to bodily liberty because we we say that goes along with autonomy, because autonomy means that uh, or one of the basic kinds of autonomy means that uh, an autonomous being can choose where to go, or who to be with. And we say that uh, indeed, elephants, chimpanzees, you know other others of are, our others are clients can do just that. They're autonomous so they can actually make conscious choices as to where they want to go, what they want to do, who they want to be with. And because they are autonomous, and judges value autonomy to an immensely high degree, they also should be persons.
1: So this, this leads me to a couple of questions. So there you are in the courtroom with all your background research data, witnesses. Where does the non-human come in into the courtroom? Are they present? Or how do you fight for an elephant per se to go from, and maybe here we can get into a couple of the specific cases, an elephant to go from, let's say, captivity, living alone in a zoo, and the campaigns to give them personhood and set them free, or put them into sanctuary. And I define sanctuary as something like the Tennessee uh, Elephant Organization or Scott Blaise's, um one in Brazil, where they have the room to, I think what you're saying, thrive, not just survive. The ability to make choices of where they want to go, still within an enclosed area, but a much larger area where they can choose. So how does this work with a chimpanzee that... You, you know, let's say, came from Performing Animal and like at the Performing Animal Welfare Conference, Um, how does it actually work? And then the second part of that question is where do they go once they've received these rights?
2: Well, let me answer the, the second part first, since that's the easier part. Uh, what where, where they would go, and our clients, Hercules and Leo, actually are there, uh, where they would go would be to, uh, to an appropriate sanctuary. We want them to go to the best sanctuary that we can possibly get them to. Hercules and Leo were our clients in, an, in a 2015 case, uh, and uh, they are now in a sanctuary in North Carolina, Project Chimps. Uh, and they're, they're they are thriving. That would be uh, kind of the kind of the, the paradigm of where we want our clients to be. Um, if you you may notice that the clients that that we're suing on behalf of uh, elephants um, right now, uh, chimpanzees, that they're not indigenous to the United States, so there are relatively few of them, and. We likely can't put them in the wild. Uh, one is that they most likely were not even born in the wild, have never been in the wild, and wouldn't know how to how to care for themselves. Uh, that's probably the biggest problem. Uh, right, and so, right. and so we we try to um, to, to steer them uh, into the uh, in, into the best place that we can possibly get them to. And for example, in our um, in our cases uh, involving elephants, we had three of them, Minnie, Karen, and Beulah in Connecticut, and Happy. Uh, the elephant who's been imprisoned in the Bronx Zoo for more than 40 years. Uh, those elephants <clears throat> were trying to persuade the judge to um, to send them to um, either the, um, tennis, the uh, Tennessee Elephant Sanctuary in, in Hohenwald, Tennessee, or to the Paws Sanctuary, the Performing Animal Welfare Society Sanctuary outside of Sacramento, and then also eventually to um, Carol Buckley's new sanctuary in Georgia once it's up and running full steam. Uh, there's a lot more chimpanzee sanctuaries uh, than there are elephant sanctuaries in North America and so we're um, uh, we have a, perhaps a larger choice of where we might be able to get those chimpanzees to go to.
1: It seems that we've been thinking of chimpanzees in more human terms to provide them this non-human personhood than we have elephants. Elephants is a newer fight,
2: Yes. Well, uh, chimpanzees were the, were the uh, ones, the, the species who we, we began with, uh, so uh, we've, we've litigated on behalf of one to four chimpanzees in the state of New York, we've litigated on behalf of three elephants in Connecticut, one elephant right now in uh, the state of New York. Uh, we're about to file uh, lawsuits in in, uh, in Connecticut, in uh, Colorado, uh, and, and we also uh, work with lawyers around the world. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm I'm traveling all the time is that we we visit and and I teach all the time uh, uh, because we we, we visit with the, the lawyers there and we try to uh, give them whatever aid we can give them uh, so that they can file similar cases to what to the ones we filed or they can uh, try to get their, their, their parliaments to, to pass statutes. So for example uh, I just uh, spent almost a month uh, teaching animal rights jurisprudence at the Tel Aviv Law School and also working with the, uh, the people who run a clinic there called the Environmental Law and Animal Rights Clinic. And the Animal Rights Clinic's work is really Based on ours, we're working with them uh, so that we we can uh, assist them in filing the first lawsuit in Israel, uh, likely in 2020, uh, that will demand legal rights for a non-human animal. Who and that non-human animal may be an maybe an elephant, maybe chimpanzee, uh, and there'll be more than one, uh, almost certainly. Similarly, with you know we're working in with um, lawyers in, in um, Canada, we're looking in uh, in India. Uh, we're working with them um, um, in, in Finland and in Spain. Spain,
1: India. France, Sweden, Finland, yeah. Switzerland, Portugal, Argentina, Turkey, yeah. India, and Australia.
2: And Colombia. We, okay. Uh, while the, the there was a case brought on behalf of a spectacled bear named Chucho, a habeas corpus case uh, brought on behalf, and I'll talk about what that is in a moment, um, brought on behalf of a spectacled bear named, named Chucho, uh, that uh, uh, in uh, September I was uh, invited by the Columbia Constitutional Court, which is the highest court in Colombia, to uh, submit a video, like a 10-minute video, in which I set out what I thought were the strongest arguments for them to find that Chucho uh, you know, ought to be a person uh, and should be able, pursuant to a writ of habeas corpus, to be leave the zoo and go back in, in into the wild. Alas, just last week, um, we got news that the court had ruled against us. Uh, it appears in the English things that we read that it was a seven to two decision so we're very interested in looking at why uh, why uh, chucho lost but also why two two judges uh, thought she ought to she ought to win um, we now have the Spanish decision but none of us are fluent in legal Spanish so uh, in a week from today uh, we'll, we'll know the answer because we've already hired uh, you know a Spanish translator to translate the decision for us um,
1: Excellent. So, listeners, um, please go to nonhumanrights.org, and um, there's several uh, pages within there that you can click on to see the current cases, the past cases, and more about what it is Stephen and his various teams, not only here in the U.S., but across the world, are Fighting for. So, right now we should probably step a break because we want to get into, as you said, what a writ of habeas corpus means. So, let's step away. We're going to take a quick break, but stick with us and we'll be right back with my guest, Stephen Wise of the Non Human Rights Project.
0: Wildlife and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Our Wild World. I'm Ellie Weiss and my guest is Stephen Wise with the Non-Human Rights Project. So if you're just tuning in now, we're talking about giving the rights of personhood to non-human animals. So be sure to go back and listen to our previous episode with Stephen. That was in 2013 or 2014 and a lot has changed now. So we're catching up. So Stephen, at Toward the end of the last section, you had mentioned what you have to do per individual animals is create the writ of habeas corpus to bring this into the courtroom. And what I'd like you to address, I'm going to let you just free flow here, is that when you win a writ of habeas corpus for your client, one or two or three animals, uh, non humans, be it a chimp an orca a whale or an elephant that it doesn't translate across all the species and that when you lose a case as you just mentioned that that also doesn't translate across so there's the good the bad and the ugly here so let's start with what is the writ of habeas corpus
2: okay well not only do we bring suits um in the form of, a, of of habeas corpus, but we also use the common law writ of habeas corpus. Let me tr- let me kind of unpack both of those too. Uh, one one there, there are many ways of, of there are many kinds of law. You can have constitutional law, you can have statutory law, and uh, you know, the civil law countries uh, in Europe, um, you know, the the English English um, uh, ancestral. Uh, uh, law also uh, involves statutes and and constitutions. But those uh, countries who descend from England, those English-speaking countries, whether it's Canada or South Africa or India or the United States, uh, we also have something called the common law. And the common law is that law that judges make. And so sometimes people think that judges don't make law. And in the civil law countries, say uh, continental Europe, those that derive their law from Roman law, they generally don't make law. That their job is to interpret statutes. In the in in English speaking countries, uh, the courts themselves, the judges themselves, can make law in, in where the stat where the legislatures have not specifically foreclosed them from doing that. And so, f- for example if you 're in France and there 's a breach of contract and so you think there is and someone sues for breach of contract, you sue under the French statute that tells you what you need to prove a breach of contract in the united states if there's a if you think there 's a breach of contract, you would sue for that, but the rules would not be found in a statute they'd almost certainly be found in the common law which is which is the accretion of of numerous uh, legal decisions by judges literally over centuries. And so the common law has been around for, I don't know, seven, 800 years, and it slowly evolves. And in, and, in, uh, and, um, and the, co- the, the common law of habeas corpus is no exception. It too slowly evolves. That's one of the main differences between English-speaking and non-English-speaking countries in that our law may slowly evolve through judges and in fact they're supposed to change the law in light of new scientific information in light of changing mores and in, in, in light of changing um, um, morals uh, in light of just just changing cultures judges are, are kind of supposed to keep up with what with what's newest in science, in morals, and culture. Uh, and so so that's we, we chose not to bring our lawsuits under a statute, which is pretty much fixed, or a constitution, which is fixed. Instead we, we go to the, 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 uh, the judges who speak English, you know, in the United States, all except Louisiana do, and, and, and use um, England, English common law. And, and we, we say, look, the idea that all non human animals are legal things who, who lack rights, that's your doing your judges, you know, years and years and years ago, you judges, your predecessor judges, said that non-human animals are things. Well, the, there's there's a, been a huge amount of scientific discovery. There's been a change in social mores. There's been a change in how we understand non-human animals in many ways. And you should consider those changes and and recognize at least some non-human animals as no longer as legal things, but as legal persons who have the capacity the rights. And the the way in which we do that, because you have to have what we lawyers call causes of action. Uh, there are various boxes that you have to check off in, or, in order to be in, to, to get your case into court. For example, you're saying I'm filing a breach of contract suit or i'm filing a suit in negligence because you ran me down in your automobile uh, or something like that and the the box that we check off is the common law habeas corpus now habeas corpus is you know is centuries old it, it derives from england it's it's so important that it's often times called the great capital g writ capital w the great writ is the is the writ of habeas corpus and the reason it's so important is that it's so purpose is to have someone freed immediately from an unlawful imprisonment so that's one of the things that we might remind judges about that how much they value autonomy and bodily liberty uh, because there's there's this great writ whose sole purpose is to allow judges to immediately release someone who's being unlawfully imprisoned. There's it's really um, it's really a cause of action that's kind of all by itself. There's really nothing like it, and that's because judges value human autonomy, human liberty, and so this has kind of arisen over over, over the centuries. Um, and
1: would you uh, let me just step in here? Would you say a lot of what has come down over centuries, and a lot of it from Colonizers—that a lot of it was presumed because we're human, and that view of the world of dominion over everything else.
2: Yes. Well, it, it's all—it's all been presumed, and so whenever we litigate, uh, we're 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 always litigating against that presumption. Okay, so, for example, okay. in the habeas corpus case, there never will have been a non-human animal who was ever brought writ of habeas corpus, and so that sort of thing disquiets judges. Um, Judges tend to be a conservative bunch, and they're and they're not all that interest all that interested in being the first to to do something like this, and also, uh, ju- usually. Um, the only time judges see a habeas corpus case is, is the way that it's been kind of uh, kind of kind changed in, for use in the United States where the overwhelming 99.99% of habeas corpus cases that a judge ever sees will be from prisoners who are using the writ of habeas corpus to challenge the validity of their criminal convictions. But, of course, we're not doing that. We're using it in the original way, which is saying, hey – my client is being unlawfully in prison and not due to a criminal conviction, but someone's just imprisoning her. So... We oftentimes um, use the example of human slaves. That there are famous cases in law, and probably the most famous is a, a case called Somerset versus Stewart, uh, that I actually wrote an entire book about in 2005 called "Though the Heavens May Fall." So in that case, you had a black slave. Uh, you know, he had a black boy who was kidnapped from Africa when he was eight years old, and he was he was the, the named Charles, who was named. Um, Uh, James Somerset, and his master was Charles Stewart. And he stayed with his master for like 20, 25 years. And then when his master brought him from England, at one point he decided to escape. And a test case was brought on his behalf, a common law writ of habeas corpus. And the question before Lord Mansfield, who was this amazing judge in England, was – was, can you imprison a fellow human being just because they're not the same race as you are? And Lord Mansfield um, famously said that slavery, and of course he was referring to human slavery. He would never have imagined that we'd be we'd be bringing a lawsuit. he habeas be lawsuit on behalf of a non-human animal. But he said that slavery is so odious that the common law will not support it, and he, dis- and he discharged. Um, James Somerset, and James, Summer, and in doing that, he implicitly also ended the practice of human slavery in England. Uh, and which is similar to what we're trying to do, which is why uh, we actually base um, many of our cases on the Somerset case. We make similar kinds of arguments, and interestingly enough, we hear similar kinds of arguments, though they don't know it, that were made by the slaves – I'm sorry, by, by the master's lawyer in London in, in 1772. They're, they're, they're remarkably similar kinds of cases. And we, we understand that, that you can, you can make – social change you know through a writ of habeas corpus and that will help bring at sometimes humans cuz the same thing for native american uh, there was a there was a in, in the united states in the 1870s there was a native american named standing there in from nebraska who was moved with his tribe to oklahoma he didn't want to be there he came back and the U- U.S. Army imprisoned him, and his lawyer brought a writ of habeas corpus to get him out of jail. How can you can hold my, my prisoner standing there, uh, m- my client prisoner? And the United States argued that a Native American... did not have any rights. They they didn't have the right to bring a writ of habeas corpus. And that judge ruled that, yes, he did. Standing Bear was a person who did have this right. And so we model our cases on the Standing Bear case in 1878, on the Somerset case, and on a plethora of other cases in Connecticut, in New York, um, and and other states uh, before the American Civil War, where the personhood and the the liberty of human slaves was in front of the courts. And we used the same sorts of arguments that were made in those cases that helped move – human slaves from the status of thing to person, now we're asking that they move our non-human slaves from the status of thing to person. This
1: is absolutely huge. It's fascinating and it's huge and we have seen a shift tremendously, I'm going to say a lot over the past 10 years and a lot of activism and advocacy for non-human rights. So, um, let's get into you'd said before judges are on the whole typically conservative so this is a huge leap you're asking these courts to take and to be first in sliding this common law and writ of habeas corpus to a non-human are you finding i'm sure at first you found it the courts were probably a bit gobsmacked and boggled that they had to make this decision. Are you finding it easier now, or is it still just as difficult as it was?
2: No, it it is easier, but remains difficult. So, for example... um Um, Habeas corpus is different, say, than a breach of contract. So if I think you've breached my contract, I can bring a civil lawsuit against you, I file a complaint, you have to file an answer, and off we go to the the law races. In order to file a habeas corpus case, we have to first persuade a judge to issue the, the writ of habeas corpus. And if you won't do that, then the case is over. So the first time, they refused the second time they refused the third time they refused and it wasn't until we had been litigating for two years and our fourth time did a, did a judge in new york issue the new york equivalent of a writ of habeas corpus called an order to show cause under the habeas corpus statute then uh, i think we probably brought a total of eight or nine cases um one other time uh, in 2018, when we brought a lawsuit um, against the Bronx Zoo on behalf of an elephant who they had imprisoned for the last 40 years, named Happy. Uh, again, we had a judge issue uh, again a an uh, order to show cause under the habeas corpus statute. So, the first three times we we didn't get anything. Probably two out of the next five times we've been able to to, to do that, uh, but. Um, So that that is is progress. It was zero. It's now two. Um, But even if the judges won't issue it at that point, we just we just appeal and we begin to make the arguments in front of the appellate courts. Uh, that we would have made in front of that court, and in fact, what we really are trying to do is get to the highest courts of of, of each state and begin and begin to engage them in it. Um, uh, so, so you pass.
1: have to you have to work your way. You go for you you reach for the golden ring, and let's say you get refused, turned down. So you go back and start working your way up through the lower courts. To gather momentum and I assume or presume it must be difficult because your clients cannot speak for themselves
2: well I, th- I think the real problem actually is a matter of implicit bias um the judges, almost all the judges we face, are implicitly biased against us, and we understand that. And I'm not saying that it's a moral failing on, beha- on behalf of the judges. Um, we're all implicitly biased in favor of or against those things, those ideas that we've grown up with, because it's been kind of the wallpaper of our lives. So we, so we don't, we don't really think about about our wallpaper. And so, uh, if we, if we even have wallpaper anymore, uh, so. So what happens is that we assume that when we go in front of a judge, that judge, unless he or she's been following our case or reading about it in papers in some way, has never thought of the idea of a non-human animal being a person. It's not something that is around her. She never uh, studied in college. She never studied in law school. She never worked on it as a lawyer. And she's never seen it as a judge. And so –
1: Although, oftentimes, it is right in their lives every day if they have, let's say, a dog, a cat, or a horse. Because when we're, it's tangible to us in our lives, we all think of our pets as part of our family. And yet, it's still called ownership, and the language is changing to guardian or caregiver.
2: Well, yeah uh, that that can happen and then there are also numerous people uh, from Amer- you know who, who treat their dogs as slaves. For example, those folks in the American Kennel Club who might dock their you know their tails or cut their ears or or, or whatever. Um, but they certainly have never they've never really seen it in with respect to an elephant say or a chimpanzee and and they their their immediate intuition is I don't want to deal with this problem. Can't go, they all tell us, why don't you go to the legislature and deal with this? And we say, well, we can go to the legislature to deal with this, except the writ of habeas corpus is a common law writ that you as a judge have to decide. And so we can go to legislature, but we can also, our client's also entitled to justice from you. And so we find that, that the um, decisions we get are all over the map. Um, so, and, and just like the way in which we're treated in court, are all over the map. Um, sometimes we're treated highly respected, really, with, with, mm-hmm. I mean, with great respect. Um, for example, the uh, uh, the judge in the Bronx Superior, the Bronx uh, Supreme Court, named uh, Alice Tewit. Uh, we have been litigating uh, the case of Happy, the habeas corpus case against the Bronx Zoo, on behalf of Happy the Elephant. Uh, Justice Toett um, has you know, allowed us to argue our case for for 13 hours so clearly our judge to it does not justice to it does not think that we're filing a frivolous case
1: right and, right.
2: and she paid a close attention for those 13 hours to copious notes notes acts, act, asked very you know perceptive questions that doesn't mean we won't win or we won't. Without or we we won't lose. You know we we don't know. We're always assuming in these early years that we're going to lose because we're doing something. But first, you have to get their attention. First, you have to make them realize that what you're doing is not frivolous, but is actually very very important. And on the other hand, um, I just I was in court uh, the other day in another state where one of the judges told me that we were wasting his time. And. and you know, we've had judges get, uh, say, OK, I'm going to give you 10 minutes to argue. And then we have judges saying, I'll give you 13 hours to argue. And it's, it's just all over the map. And and it's going to continue to be that way for, for some time, although as we as as our work is known as, you know, more and more uh, respected folks uh, write about us, you know, there's now 100, 150 law review articles, books that talk about us, documentaries. And so uh, – and and they reach down to, to judges. But it also depends upon who these judges are. And you know, we would love to sit down with some of the judges who are very favorable to us to ask – why is it you're favorable? Why don't you think we're filing a frivolous case? Why do you think that we're making good arguments? Just like we'd like to sit down with the judges and say, why do you think we're filing a frivolous argument? What is it about us that irritates you? And good we questions. We're uh, we, unfortunately, we can't sit down with those with those judges, that's how it goes, but maybe, for example, when some of them who like us or don't like us retire, maybe maybe they'll sit down with us and we'll say, well, you know, how come you didn't like us? Or how come you did like us? Um, we've had that opportunity, by the way, in India. Uh, uh, Hardly anyone in the United States knows that in 2014, the Indian Supreme Court, in a case called Nagaraja, said that all am- non-human animals in India have rights. And we're not sure exactly what that means, and that's one of the reasons we're beginning to work to litigate cases in India to try to really nail down what they're talking about. But that Supreme Court judge actually had retired, uh, and then he sat down with us, had breakfast with uh, with Kevin Schneider, their executive director, and I. When we when we said, "Why did you Why did you rule that uh, that you know that non human animals had rights?" and I thought we might be able to use his arguments in um, in the United States. It turned out that that his Hindu faith was really very much behind it, and so okay. I, I, I didn't. So that was something very interesting. It kind of supported our idea that it's really kind of the personal beliefs of the judges that more than the law, way more than the law, that causes them to even want to listen to us or not listen to us in in the first place. There's another judge who ruled that um, uh, that uh, the birds who were in cages had a, had a, a right to fly, and he ordered the defendant to open the cages and let the birds out. And we we asked him, why did you do that? Well, I'll tell you, he really likes birds.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So So, so. it it does come down to bias that, you know, oftentimes justice is not blind because there is a sentient feeling human being sitting
2: up there, uh, ju- judges. Uh, well, there's you're right. Unfortunately, or fortunately, for the fan non human animals, all I have is us you know, we're humans and we are fallible in so many ways. I won't it would take the rest of the time just to list them. Um, I, I think. There's something important that allows a judge to say, to think what we're doing is important enough for that judge to listen to, and we we have an increasing number of judges who do that, and we ha- and the only time we've been able to get to a high court judge, which means a judge who sits on the on the highest court of a jurisdiction, uh, we have had um, a single judge in the court of appeals in New York, which is the highest court in New York. He did not agree when his colleagues decided that they simply didn't want to hear our appeal, which happens all the time because in New York, the highest court only hears 5% of the cases that come to it because they simply don't have time to hear all the cases. They get thousands and thousands come to them every year, so it didn't surprise us that the first two times that we brought an appeal – to the High Court of New York, we, we were turned down. But you know, we one thing is we, we don't even know how to spell the words give up. <laughs> we, we we never you know, we know that we are on a long term social justice struggle that we fully intend to win. And uh, and if we don't win then our children will win. But by golly, we it will be won. And we are, and 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 so that judge actually, Judge Eugene Feighery on the New York Court of Appeals, he said some things that were very important to us. One of them is that he said, and this involved a chimpanzee. He basically said, that he did say, he said chimpanzees are not things, and they are likely persons. And our arguments are right. In fact, he, he then um, went through the cases that the lower court judges who have ruled against us, and there were about four of them, and he showed how each of them was wrong. Uh, but that he concluded that chimpanzees were not things, and that they were probably persons, which was had been our arguments. He also noted that the courts that had ruled against us were wrong, sometimes completely they had it backwards, which is what, what we had been arguing. And then perhaps most interestingly for us in the long run is that he said that he had been struggling with the votes that he had made against us several years before. And he, he had essentially changed his mind. And this is what we believe. We understand that when we go in front of a judge for the first time who's never heard this kind of thing, it's not likely we're going to win, maybe not the second time, maybe not the fifth time. But eventually, since our arguments, our, our legal arguments are powerful and the facts that we bring before the judges that that show how autonomous and self-determining and, and extraordinarily cognitively complex our clients are, that these kinds of, of arguments, legal and factual, are going to cause other judges who are intelligent and willing to open their minds to begin ruling against, uh, I'm sorry, to begin ruling in favor of us as well.
1: And it's time, you know, we are facing such a paradigm shift right now. So we need to step away for a short break. We have a huge topic here and Steve is fascinating to listen to us. So we'll be right back. Stick with us.
0: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's one 472 5788 If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world
1: welcome back, Our Wild World, with my fascinating guest, Stephen Wise, of the Non-Human Rights Project. So, as you can tell, this is quite the subject that requires a lot of persistence, a lot of passion, and a lot of perseverance. So, um, Stephen, I have a question. So, each case has to be fought, uh, worked on, per individual. And we, we touched on this a bit, but... Just because you win the writ of habeas corpus and perhaps success that this chimpanzee or these three elephants did gain the rights of personhood, does this translate at all in terms of trickling out to those animals that are not in what we would like to call the protection or standards of care of either the American Zoo Association or a recognized facility those animals non-humans that are in private hands or roadside zoos
2: well I'll have to answer it the way lawyers do and say well maybe sometimes yes sometimes no Um, if I think if for some reason we were able to get to a high court and the high court you know, ruled in favor of us who at least our non-human animal client, we'd have to see what, what the grounds were, how broadly they spoke, because uh, there is some, you know, reasonable chance that that could then um, have, an, have a, an impact upon, you know, every captive elephant or every captive chimpanzee, for example. We wouldn't really have to litigate others. Um, if we actually win at a trial level, then it might, only, it would probably only apply to that non-human animal who we freed, of t- so there's, you know, whenever you file a lawsuit, there's a thousand different ways that the lawsuit can go. And, and actually, as, as the non-human rights project lawyers just find out, sometimes there's 2,000 ways. We had never seen the other 1,000 before. Uh, for example, um, I managed to spend the first you know, 40 years to 35 years of my practice having to bring a writ of mandamus, which means I actually sued a judge saying, Judge, you're not doing your job. You need to do it. Only once. In thirty-five years, in the first four years of bringing litigation in New York, we actually had to sue judges twice um, because they they refused even to hear our case. And we said, "I know you don't want to hear our case, but you have to." And we had to sue them in order to get them to even hear our case. Wow! And so that kind of can give an example of some of the resistance that, you know, that 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 we can see in some of the judges. But but um, I, I think if we were able to get a high court of a state to say, you know, a judge in a, a, a judge an elephant in a circus is freed because they have bodily liberty that would probably apply to every elephant in, in, in that state you know, under under every circumstance
1: So would you say the results of your work when Barnum and Bailey, finally decided to stop using elephants in their entertainment in circuses and then everyone fought to have them move to sanctuary. Barnum and Bailey didn't. They created their own sanctuary for these elephants. Now whether they're being treated with the care um, that we would expect of non-human personhood, I don't know. I haven't followed up on this recently, but do you think your work had the trickle-down effect to create the wave of advocacy to make that happen for those elephants?
2: Well, I think that the Non-Human Rights Project is both creating that wave and also riding the wave that that, that others create. Um, uh, the, the, The folks who do work outside of the courtroom are as or even perhaps more important than the work that we lawyers do inside the courtroom? That uh, was
1: going to be my next question. You know, advocacy, what can we, our listeners, the public in every country across the globe, how can we, I mean, beyond donating to the work, because the work in the courtroom, as you said, 13 hours, you know, the funds that it takes to do the background work, to put these cases together, and then to continue the fight once you've gotten a judgment in your favor to actually move transfer and get these animals to a place of sanctuary how can we help
2: well we lawyers cannot create the atmosphere in the society in which the judges are are living or in which we're we're all living Uh, we can't win our cases Unless people are out there demonstrating, unless they're out there at calling their representatives at the state and federal level, unless they're making their voices known, so that legislators, judges, and others understand that uh, that there is a that, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are determined to change the, you know this part of the world. So, for example, in in the in Happy's case, um, we've had. Um, uh, Alexander Cassio Cortez's uh, you know, staff it, it, uh, issued a, uh, you know, like a tweet on our behalf. Uh, Mayor De Blasio on a show showed support for our suit against Happy. Um, the, uh, speaker the, house, uh, sorry, the, the Speaker of the House, I'm sorry, the Speaker of the New York City Council, um, you know, issued a statement saying that that uh, that he, he you know, in favor of our our lawsuit. And you know these things and other things like it happen when the people people out there are, are writing their legislators, calling them, you know, emailing them, saying this is how we want non-human human animals to be treated. We want them to be persons. We want them to have legal rights, and we want them not to, you know to be kept as our slaves, to be treated and kept – to be kept in captivity. We want them to be treated uh, as any rights bearing you know entity ought to be treated, and that is what really changes the world. And uh, it, 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 it's kind of like <clears throat> we lawyers have a bunch of rights seeds and we can throw them on the ground and they're not going anywhere unless all the people outside the courtroom have kind of caused the ground to be plowed. The ground is ready for us to throw the seeds on. And then
1: we the have thing- to keep watering it and keep tending
2: a- to it. Absolutely. You know, we can't we cannot do it ourselves. We're probably not even the most important part. We're, we're, the, we're, we're the folks who come in when everyone else has made the society ready for this, and then we come in and actually get it done. But the judges and legislatures have to have already been ready to get it done. Right. Or they're, not, they're going to ignore us.
1: Or you're going to keep being persistent over and over and over and keep appealing until – you almost force the hand you have to make this decision it's your job
2: yes but then when they do make the decision we want them to rule in our favor
1: a- absolutely yeah.
2: so, so- that, that, yes that, that, that's why you know, people out there just and, and we meet them all the time uh, and we want we want rallies you know we want emails we want phone calls we want people telling their legislators their elected officials at all levels non-human animals should have rights we're tired of having them all be our slaves they deserve to be treated uh, with, with the respect that personhood and rights brings.
1: And if we could rally around Cecil the lion here in the U.S. to create the Cecil law, which is under a little pressure right now, granted, for a wild lion that really was not famous until he was named and killed, if we can do that, then we can certainly get behind what... Non-Human Rights Project is doing. So, folks, go to nonhumanrights.org and read their website. Go to their Facebook page. There are petitions. There's elephants probably in your zoos. And we need to advocate and be active. We can't stay silent for this. So, Stephen, I have one last question, and I don't know if it applies to your work or not. There is a lot of... Um, Information and posts going on about nosy the elephant. Do you know much about her case?
2: I know a little bit about it, but uh, uh, not, not much. i okay. I kind of follow it a little bit. Uh, we tend to not focus on welfare cases. We tend to focus on rights cases, and most of them either we're bringing in the United States or some of our folks we're working with are being outside of the united states uh there's kind of an unlimited number of non-human animals being abused you know throughout the united states and we greatly admire and respect and support the work that animal protection groups are doing but we generally don't follow uh, cases closely that don't have to do with rights
1: okay so that's another important distinction that um this is not an animal welfare organization. Animal welfare is important. It's a paradigm shift that's happening once we get our mindset around to giving animals the welfare they deserve. People like Mark Beckoff, um, uh, Camilla Fox, we're all fighting uh, Joyce Poole and Petter Granley of uh, Elephant Voices, of giving these animals what they, non-humans, what they deserve in the wild and in captivity, but what you're doing is fighting the actual legal battles that hopefully will trickle out and become the norm.
2: Well, you know, Joyce Poole has been exceedingly helpful for us. She is one of the experts who files uh, affidavits for us in our habeas corpus cases involving elephants. And uh, her affidavits are extraordinarily helpful to us.
1: Yes, she's a a friend of mine, a colleague, and um, my organization, Wild Eyes, has provided funding for their work. And she's also very vocal on this other aspect of what is going on with elephants and what happened at CITES about wild elephants, that they want a big win, that they can no longer be traded and sold outside of their range states, except there was a loophole, elephant-sized loophole, that Zimbabwe went ahead and sold 32 baby elephants over to china they're in china and then they will be going through the crush process within the next few months so we're going to be reporting on we have been reporting on that and we will be reporting on that because that's a whole other side that could be the ramifications consequences in a good way of the work that non-human rights is doing if we get the snowball domino effect
2: yeah absolutely um now, there's 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 us, there's a few other organizations in the world who are beginning to, follow, to copy us or do the similar kind of work uh, that are seeking to get rights. Rights is where it's at. And if you don't think that rights isn't where it's at, just imagine if you have, if you lose all of your rights, you would feel completely unprotected because you would be completely unprotected. So well, all legal history has showed us over the centuries that the only way in which the fundamental interests of human beings can be protected is through fundamental rights. It's the exact same thing for non human. Human animals. The only way their fundamental interests can be protected is through fundamental rights. But this is a battle that's going to go on for a long time. While that's happening, there are untold number of non-human animals who need to be protected now, now as much as you can in a system that views them as things that we can do anything to. That's why we admire and respect these organizations, you know, so much. Uh, they're doing it different things. They're kind of, they're kind of helping them the way they – the most they possibly can in a system that is so biased against them, while us and other folks are, try, are in – we're playing a much longer game in which we're determined uh, to get legal rights for them so that they'll be persons. And human beings will no longer uh, uh, no longer have to respect them because it's their choice, but, but it's because if not – You're going to get sued.
1: And not to take away from the topic that we are, actually, the rights that you're talking about, CITES, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna, has to shift to... A modern and contemporary mindset. CITES is all about trade, which is all about making money off the backs and putting the burden of economic development and poverty alleviation on the backs of wildlife in wild landscapes. So hopefully through the body of your work and your continued fight for these individuals it will translate and do you think it will eventually snowball and domino into the rights of wild
2: animals oh oh, absolutely uh, there's I, I don't think there's any question that 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 that, that will happen and uh in fact it's it, it's inevitable uh and uh, uh we have to and and the process has begun uh, you can't minimize the fight, the, you know, the, the economic fight, you know, the fight against economic interests, the fight against political interests, sometimes religious interests, you know, historical interests, psychological uh, issues. It's a huge fight, but the fight, this kind of fight has been done before and been won, and ours is going to be ours is going to win as well.
1: This is excellent. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation because when we hear about animal rights and animal welfare, a lot of people tend to slough it off. You know, hunters have their uh, propaganda and their... Um, with the. Coming up of the big Dallas Safari Club, Safari Club International Convention with Donald Trump speaking at it and the Beach Boys playing at it, it's time to shift the way we see the other earthlings on our world that don't have our form.
2: Well, we, uh, we entertain the judges with that by telling this exact thing. Uh, hey, Judge, um, you're going to hear something you've never thought about before, and this is why you need to think about it now and why you need to rule in our favor. And uh, you can either be viewed by history as a person who was up front Or you can be viewed by history as a person who was left back, and you will be viewed the way we view those judges who condone human slavery 150 years ago. So it's up to you.
1: So that's a very good point. And, you know, 2020 is a very big year. These last five years saw a lot of changes. We're having a lot of upheavals not only here in the United States but across the world as the economic interests seem to be gaining – Uh, speed over welfare and rights and the rights of our number one resource, planet Earth. So folks, we need to fight these battles. I know it's overwhelming. It gets exhausting. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to support organizations like the Non-Human Rights Project and educate ourselves and understand and take this battle to our communities, our neighbors, our friends, and to the world. So, Stephen, we're out of time. I thank you so much for this fascinating conversation.
2: Well, Ellie, don't be so long. Don't wait six, uh, six more years to have me back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I won't. I won't. My apologies. Um, um, you know, it, let me know when you've got something going on, and I'll keep track. And I would love to hear, you know, the results of these uh, current cases and what happens with Happy.
2: And, and we also uh, – have a website that's completely transparent. Every single paper that is filed, every decision that comes down of any kind, it all goes up on our website. You can just, and it's a very easy website to navigate, and you can just keep up. And also, um, uh, get on our, our uh, emailing list, um, you know, because every time something happens, an email comes out. Uh, that that tells you what happened.
1: So, Stephen, thank you. This has been wonderful, and we'll talk again soon. So, okay. meanwhile, uh, listeners, step out into Our Wild World, and let's keep fighting the good fight.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.